We are in Job 32. You are almost there. You have almost made it. There's only one person left to speak before Job finally finishes us off, but that's next week. So how many of you are sick and, sick and tired of hearing from Job's friends? I am. You're in luck. They don't get to talk anymore. They're done. Yay! I mean, and let's be honest. Could somebody else sitting around the campfire do any worse? In all honesty, I mean, might as well let somebody else give it a shot. It's not like they're going to do any worse than everybody else has done. And, and you would be right. So we are going to dive into a, as you can see here, a long speech by Elihu. Elihu, Elihu, pick your pronunciation and go with it. Confidence is what matters when Bible pronunciations are concerned. If you sound like you know what you're talking about, people will just believe you and go along with it. <laughs> as, as long as... Um, Oh, it just went right out of my head. As long as you don't do the one that always drives me nuts, which is everybody tries to add an I, and I can't think of which one of the prophets it is now. It just went right, it's one of my pet peeves, and it just went right out of my head, but everybody always adds a letter to one of the prophets. No, it's, um, it's not, oh, okay, we're all going to look now because we've done this. Hold on. No, it's, yeah, it's one of the minors. It is. It's one of the minor prophets, and everybody adds a vowel to it, and it drives, it's Haggai. Everybody likes to say Haggai. It, it's Haggai. Haggai, Haggai, not Haggai, it, just, it drives me crazy. That, and there is a difference between Zechariah and Zechariah. The prophet is Zechariah. Ze, 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 okay, there, thus endeth the lecture. <laughs> there will be a quiz on this later. <laughs> so once again, be confident in your pronunciation, no one will ask any questions. But on to Elihu, which is how I'm going to go with it, just because it's the simplest way for me to say it, and it's stuck in my head that way, so we're there. He is not perfect, but this, tell me if this is the most shocking thing I'll say all day. He does better than all three friends. And you're like, we jumped over that nice high bar, didn't we? Now, last warning. I know we have lunch today. Don't panic. We are going to spend a lot of time on the beginning half of this speech, simply because that's where all of the difficult details and the actual meat of it is. The second half of it, I'm not going to say it's unimportant. The second half of it is predominantly, this is, okay. Get it out of your head that I'm a bad, get it into your head now that I'm a bad person, because this is going to sound really terrible when I say this. The second half of his speech is mostly praise of God. So we're just going to skip that part. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but I do encourage you to read all of it. It is very good. It is very edifying. It is very uplifting. But it is built on the things he says at the beginning. The reason we're going to go through it quickly is because it's a lot of repeated themes that we can take in big pieces as opposed to individual verses that need to be broken down. So I'm not telling you it's not good. I'm just saying we got to pick something in all of these chapters for you to read at home. So we're going to go with the praise. You need positive and encouraging. You finished it in your head, so I don't have to anymore. <laughs> that is officially going to become like when someone looks at you and goes, sweet Caroline. See? Yeah. I'm just going to go positive, encouraging, and in your back of your brain, there's going to be this thing twitching going, okay, love. <laughs> so, all right. So let's dive in. We start in chapter 32, and we will start right there at the beginning. Then these three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. But the anger of Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite of the family of Ram, burned. All right, we're going to pause right there. Uh, what's a Buzzite? 
Buzzite, Boozite, I don't care. Pick one and go with it. Uh, Jeremiah 25 will help you out. All the kings of Tyre, all the kings of Sidon, and the kings of the coastlands, which are beyond the sea, and Dan, Tema, Buzz, and all who cut the corners of their hair. So we do have other mentions in Scripture. Once again, the argument about Job's authorship is either Moses or Solomon. Pick one, go with it, I don't care. Gun to my head, depending on the day, I'd probably pick a different one each time you ask me that question. Uh, most of these names are more than likely anachronistic, meaning they were being used in the time of the author to describe a time that he was not in. So when we're talking about him being a Buzite, that's because that's who lives there now in the area that Elihu is from. If you really want to get technical about it, ooh, ooh, get an excuse, you ready? Run to the map. Um, <clears throat> his family would have been from somewhere in this area along the eastern side of Sinai, which is where Moses' father-in-law in the Midianites would have been settling with their herds and flocks. So if you're looking at that, if you're looking at a map in your Bible, east, uh, I said eastern, didn't I? I'm sorry, western side of the Sinai Peninsula. So there you go. Now, his anger is burning. Against Job, his anger burned because he justified himself before God. That's actually a really good reason to be angry. Who's the holy one in that equation, Job or God? Who's the one who justifies and who's the one who draws the standard? It is God. Remember, it is the fool that is said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's Psalm 14. That's what Paul's quoting in Romans 3 when he makes his same argument. Instead, go to another prophet. How shall the righteous man live, Habakkuk? Though, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous man will live by his faith. Job justifying himself before God is part of the problem. Job has located his righteousness where? In him, in his actions. That's why he demands, if I stand before God, I will be not guilty. Job has misunderstood what makes him righteous. Therefore, Elihu is angry. But wait, there's more. And his anger burned against his three friends because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. That's also a pretty good reason to be angry. Imagine sitting, see, we're annoyed reading this. Imagine sitting there and listening to it. How many times you'd be like, it's like, I wonder how many times he just got up. He's like, I got to go for a walk. I can't take this anymore. <laughs> because hasn't this been the entire argument? Well, we know you did something. No, I didn't do anything. Well, you obviously did something. Look at you. Something bad happened to you. You must have done something wrong. I haven't done anything. Well, you did something. It's obvious. If you're going to keep condemning the man, at some point you have to come up with what? Something that he has done wrong. It's the, what they are doing is the opposite of living wisely. Again, Christian, what's your standard? James 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. What does being double-minded and unstable look like? We have no idea what you did wrong, but it must be something, so you're guilty. I mean, that sounds like a bad Monty Python sketch about the Spanish Inquisition, doesn't it? Like, we've, you've done something. We don't know what, but it's something. <laughs> That's what this entire back-and-forth argument has been. So he's annoyed. 
But if he just went off angry, would he be doing any better than anybody else in this? No, no, he would not. So he continues. Now, Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were years older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of the three men, his anger burned. He's being patient. God, 1 Peter 5. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, this is the good news. This is what, in all of this conversation, true wisdom would have looked like. Thinking, hearing, evaluating, and when all has been said, going, okay, now let's figure out what's right. And we're going to figure out what's right, not based on what Job has said, not based on what the three friends have said, but based upon what we know about who. What should be the standard, Christian? What we know about God. Let's stop, understand who God is, and then understand how we live in light of that and what has come in regards to those truths. This is one of those things, you and I have gone over this a bunch of times. Start with you, try to understand your world in God. What does that look like? <laughs> yeah, train wreck, nothing good. Start with God, understand the world and your place in it. What do you know? Things begin to make sense. Things begin to have explanation and understanding. Again, true wisdom. We're finally going to get some. So you ready? Here we go. So Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, spoke out and said, I am young in years, and you are old. Therefore, I was shy and afraid to tell you what I think. I thought age should speak, and increased years should teach wisdom. But it is a spirit in man, and the breath of the Almighty gives them understanding. The abundant in years may not be wise, nor many elders understand justice. <laughs> That's actually a really stinging rebuke. That's, here I am, sitting amongst all you wise elders, waiting for wisdom from on high, and never mind. Never mind. Here I thought you who have lived longer would know something, but you know what I've learned watching you speak and argue with each other? A knowledge of God is more important than age. I mean, you've never met an old fool, have you? Never once, right? <laughs> See, you're giggling because you know one. What's the beginning of wisdom? Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Understanding who God is, what this world looks like in light of him. You can live a thousand years. If you don't start with God, what are you going to come up with? That's why I laugh and I get a kick out of... Um, watching some of these interviews, and, and I, will, I will do this on occasion just to torment myself, because I'm weird. Don't be like me, kids. Um, I will watch interviews with secularists and atheists just to kind of, when they're talking, not about religion, but when they're talking about the world in general, just to kind of see what the foundations are. And what you realize is, like, it sounds really smart and really enlightened because they're using all these big words and fancy ideas, but when you get down to the core of it, it's just, bleh. There's, there's nothing, there's no there there. There's no substance to it because they've rejected the foundational truth of things and then they're trying to make sense of everything else in regards to what would life look like if we built it in a swamp. I mean, you could build a really nice house. You could build a really nice life. But at the end of the day, you look at the window and yeah. And that's kind of what it reminds me of. First um, Timothy 4 gives you an understanding a bit prescribe and teach these things. By the way, these things are everything that's come before in 1 Timothy. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. In other words, Timothy, I don't care if you're younger. 
you know God. You know the scriptures. Therefore, teach and show what does a believer look like who is demonstrating wisdom in spite of his years. That would be something that would be a good idea to train children up in, wouldn't it? That'd be a good idea and something to call teenagers to, 20-somethings to. This idea that we have childhood into eternity is a secular one. It is one that says, no, 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 there'll be plenty of time for you to grow up. Says who? Says who? That's why I joke every time, you know, we start complaining about our back or our knees or our elbows. I'm not, I'm not picking on Terry. I mean, sometimes injuries happen. But, I mean, as you get older, stuff starts hurting and stuff starts breaking down. And I keep saying, well, if getting old was fun, everybody would do it. And we all laugh because we're all doing what every day? But does everybody do that? No. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. You're not guaranteed next year. You're not guaranteed anything. Where'd she, when should you live wisely and faithfully? Now. When can you control? Now. As we train children, as we train teenagers, as we train young adults, we should be training them with the expectation that you are supposed to be growing and maturing because that's the goal of godliness. That's the goal of wisdom. Not that you should be a 40-year-old child, but that you should actually be a capable human being. And by the way, what does that look like? Because <laughs> remember, see, I got, a, I got a taste of this as a child because I got the speech all the time from my dad. I know you just love speeches from my dad. I don't care if you like me. I care that you grow up to be an adult. <laughs> well, what did that look like for him? Would I have a job? Would I pay my taxes? Would I not go to jail? You know, now, Christian, are those all admirable goals? Yes, they're all secondary. They're all secondary. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do those things, and you know what you're probably going to end up doing? You're probably going to get a job. You're probably going to pay your taxes. You're probably not going to go to jail. You're probably going to train up a family well. In other words, get the heart and the motivations in the right place, and then let life build out from there. But that starts with an expectation of what? No, 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 no. There is a God in heaven who has ordained and ordered his universe and his world in such a manner that as you live in it, you should be honoring and following that. That is a call to maturity. That is a call to wisdom. When should that start, just out of curiosity? <laughs> when do we try to start that a lot of times? Now again, is it ever too late to start? No, that's not my point. My point is from the minute you understand that and start that, what should be the expectation of your life and the lives of the people that you are trying to train and disciple? Yeah. Boys will be boys is not an understanding. Well, they're young. Mm -mm. We expect because we are training and teaching and demonstrating and living. And if we're not doing those things, then where's my problem? Yeah, now I found the area that I need to repent, the area that I need to return to Christ with so that I can then do what? Recognize that by the power of his spirit and the wisdom of his word, I can now live differently, honoring the God who has loved me and given himself for me. I can now live in this world differently. And now again, that involves discipling in those, those that have been given charge. This is what wisdom should look like. So this is what Elihu is going to do. You ready for your first big time jump? We are, that, the rest of this chapter is him explaining why he's waited so long to speak. He was young, they were old, he thought they were wise, he was wrong. <laughs> there you go. So we're going to uh, 33, chapter 33, Sally, verse 1 there. I know Sally's going to hate me today. We're going to be skipping some chunks. There we go. So after all the caveats are given, however now, Job, please hear my speech and listen to all my words. Behold now, I open my mouth, 
My tongue and my mouth speaks. My words are from the uprightness of my heart, and my lips speak knowledge sincerely. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Refute me if you can. Array yourselves before me. Take your stand. Behold, I belong to God, like you. I too have been formed out of the clay. Behold, no fear of me should terrify you, nor should my pressure weigh heavily on you. Now, time out. This is something we're going to spend a little bit of time here because this is important. What's the tone of Elihu's speech here? Am I here to fight with you, Job? No. Am I here to condemn you? Am I even here to argue with you? No, I'm here to do what? I'm here to testify to who God is and what he has said. If that's a problem for you, <laughs> then where does the problem lie? Not between me and you, but between you and God. Now, this is important. This is the principle that Paul is trying to lay down later on. Things like Ephesians 4. We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine. Notice the, the language similar to James's, living in wisdom, living for Christ. But by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful speaking, but... Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part, causing the, body to, the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. If you want the Reader's Digest version of that, one of the Bible verses, if you don't know this one, this is one you should memorize, Ephesians 4.29. Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only such a word as, as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Now, let's have some fun, because this has actually been a conversation, and will continue to be a conversation in the modern world. You need to watch your tone. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> some, of you, some of you are like, I have heard this lecture before. Probably, but not the way I'm going to give it. You ready? <sighs> tone is not a product of the outcome of your words. Tone is a product of the outcome of the intentions of your heart. Thus endeth the lecture. No, I wish. I'm serious. We are told all the time, well, you know, you just sound angry. Why? Well, because you keep disagreeing with me and telling me how wrong I am. Wait for it. That's because you are wrong. See, that doesn't make me evil or make my tone bad. That makes you wrong because you have rejected God and are walking contrary to his ways. If you disagree with me on this, don't talk about my tone, talk about the Bible. <laughs> Once again, if you want to have this argument with Job and Elihu, where, you gotta, where's the, where is Elihu trying to lay the foundation? Disagreement's not between us. I don't care. This is between you and God, and you are in the wrong place before God. Therefore, I'm going to show you that, demonstrate what, looks, what it looks like when it's right, and if you have a problem with that, Take it up with the big guy upstairs. Don't take it up with me. This is how you should be interacting with the world, Christian, is you should be trying to, again, live out the truth that you know from Scripture. Your walk matching what you believe to be true and what you know you are supposed to be doing. When you encounter the world while doing that, that's just going to go smashingly well, right? Suddenly I'm British and things are going to go smashingly. Don't ask me where that idea came from. I mean, that's just going to go amazing. Things are going to be awesome for you. There will be no conflict. There will be no friction. Everything will be perfect, right? 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 No, no. You wish it would. I wish it would. That would be so much easier. And when it's not, you're going to be called difficult. You're going to be called hateful. You're going to be told that your tone is wrong. You're going to be called, you need to be nicer and kinder, and you need to tell them to shut up. And I'm not kidding. 
because at the end of the day, you stand upon truth. And the argument is not between you and the world. The argument is between the world and God. You are merely there to demonstrate the truth. Always remember this. You can't win the argument. What are you going to convince a rock of, just out of morbid curiosity? Just, I mean, mean, would you, you know what, Podium? I'm really sick and tired of the way you stand there like that. You know what I would, I mean, if I started talking like that and I was serious, what would you do? (laughs) <laughs> You'd be like, oh, okay, it's finally cracked. It's, 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 it's finally happened. And let's be honest, none of you would leave. You would want to see exactly how that turned out. <laughs> you would be bringing lunch in here like, okay, uh, you know, let's see how this goes. That's what you would do. It's, uh, I know it, you know it, let's all just be honest about it. Because You know I'm crazy because what is this going to accomplish? Arguing with the podium. That's why I laugh about talking to the TVs when they start flickering on me. Because what is that really going to do? Nothing. Um, what are you going to convince those who are dead in their trespasses of sins, just out of curiosity? What are you going to make them do? What are you going to convince them of truth? You testify and trust what? That God, by his Holy Spirit, will regenerate. That God, by his Holy Spirit, will change their heart and mind and put them upon a new path. You are being faithful, not unto this argument, but you are being faithful unto God who redeems and rescues. You are pointing them not to your wisdom and brilliance, but to a God who redeems and rescues. If you end that conversation, be like, I was right, and now they know it. (laughs) Good job. Congratulations. Now what? But if you've left them with the testimony of Christ ringing, then you have succeeded even if nothing has changed, because you are faithful unto the God who has rescued you, redeemed you, called you, sanctified you, and sent you out into this world to do battle. That's the goal. That's the hope. This is the place you're supposed to rest. This isn't about us versus them. This is about what happens to them when it's still them versus God at the end of eternity. That's the battle we don't want to see happening. So, Elihu is going to summarize. Surely you have spoken in my hearing, and I have heard the sound of your words. And now this is his quote, you ready? This is what Job has said. I am pure without transgression. I am innocent, and there is no guilt in me. Behold, he invents pretexts against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks. He watches all my paths. Now, in Elihu's defense, that's actually a pretty good summary of what Job has said. I mean, he's trying to distill like 15 chapters down to three verses, but that's pretty good. Job in Job 9 said, I am guiltless. I do not take notice of myself, and I despise my life. In chapter 10, he told God, According to your knowledge, I am indeed not guilty, yet there is no deliverance from your hand. So, this is a good understanding of what Job has said. He has given you the Reader's Digest version, and now he's going to rebuke it. Now, stop. This is why all this time I've been asking you, how would you respond to Job? With what would you answer his complaints? Because Elihu is going to rebuke Job by answering his objections. Nope. By explaining to Job exactly how he was wrong. Nope. He's going to rebuke Job with the greatness of God. You're going to start singing how great thou art in high baritone in Job. No, I'm kidding. Just making sure you guys are all still paying attention. (laughs) If this was a musical, though, that would be the next scene, though, wouldn't it? This guy stand up, spotlight on him, you know. (laughs) Sorry, sorry. Behold, let me tell you, you are not right in this, for God is greater than man. Why do you complain against him that he does not give an account of all his doings? 
Indeed, God speaks once or twice, yet no one notices it. In a dream, a vision of the night, when sound sleep falls on men, while they slumber in their beds, then he opens the ears of men and seals their instruction. In other words, um, Isaiah would remind them that God's thoughts are not your thoughts and his ways are not your ways, but his thoughts and his ways are above you. He starts out with basically this, Job, who do you think you are? Seriously, who do you think you are that you're going to stand there and say, I did everything right. How dare you do this to me? (laughs) Because you've never said that. You've never thought that. You've never, you know, like in the back resources of your mind, put that in the back. You've never done that. Elihu continues, that he may turn man aside from his conduct, keep man from pride, keep, he keeps back his soul from the pit and his life from passing over into Sheol. Again, the grave, into the grave. Man is also chastened with pain on his bed and with unceasing complaint in his bones so that his life loathes bread and his soul favorite food. His flesh wastes away from sight and his bones which were not seen stick out. Then his soul draws near to the pit and his life to those who bring death. Um, Because I recognize that God is at work and he is greater than I am, then I can recognize that when he works, he is working for a reason. That's what Elihu is on about right here. In other words, what was one of the things we kept talking about? All through the interactions with Job and his friends, nobody at any point goes, Job, okay, let's assume you're right and you did nothing wrong and you are righteous from God. Why did he do this to you? Wouldn't that be an obvious question to ask? Wouldn't that be something simple to be like, hey, okay, why do you think he did this? If you're not being judged for your sin and you've done nothing wrong, then why has the Almighty, who is in control of all things, done this? There's got to be a reason. Nobody thought to ask that until Elihu. This is his understanding. Now, your New Testament would give you answers to these questions, things like Romans 8. I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared with the glory that is revealed to us. 2 Corinthians 4. We do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Ow! (laughs) Whack the podium with my elbow, that felt wonderful. Would you describe your aging as a light affliction? I'm serious. I mean, would you describe that as momentary and light? (laughs) If you're not over 30, you don't get to answer. (laughs) The reason why I ask that is because perspective matters. This is one of the things that's been broken in this entire book is nobody's had the right perspective. Everybody's been doing this and looking at themselves, not paying attention to what's beyond. Why can Paul talk about the sufferings of life, the beatings, the difficulties, the persecutions, the going to prison, the being stoned and left for dead, being shipwrecked and lost at sea? Why can he describe all of those things as momentary light afflictions? Because this world is not his home. Because his citizenship is not here, and he is looking for a world that is to come. He is longing for a kingdom yet to be revealed. In other words, he is a pilgrim in this place, and he is traveling to his actual home. When that becomes a perspective, these things become simpler to manage. These things become simpler to understand that they are momentary and they are light, because if this is the worst the world has to throw at me, (laughs) how wonderful will that kingdom be when even this is cast aside 
and all of the difficulties and desecrations of sin are set aside and are gone forever. Perspective matters. Which is, once again, why the rebukes are what they are. So let's continue with him. Lost my spot, sorry. If there is an angel as mediator for him, one out of a thousand, to remind a man what is right for him, then let him be gracious to him and say, Deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresher than in youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then he will pray to God and he will accept him, that he may see his face with joy and he may restore his righteousness to man. Okay, time out. This is where the NASB is trying to help us out here. Um, Sally, go, um, you know what, go back to 23. I want to walk through this so we can see this on the screen and make sense of it. Because that way I can look at the same thing you're looking at. <laughs> go back, go back, young man. <laughs> no. I'm sorry. Oh, that's, I looked at the wrong color. It was red. I apologize for that. Now the computer's, there we go. Okay. And I apologize for that. I looked at the wrong color. My batteries are dying. So if I suddenly, you can't hear me, I'll have to run and grab a battery real fast. Um, <clears throat> because Elihu knows God's work is greater and above, because he's recognized that God is working for a purpose, his trust is in God. Now, the reason why I've gone back to this, he's talking about the man who's facing death. If there is an angel as mediator for him, talk about the man who's dying. If there's an angel to mediate for that man, one out of a thousand to remind a man what is right. Now stop, Christian. Is there a mediator for man before God? Yes. Why does Elihu have this thought, though? Remember, go back. What are we longing for, Christian? What's the hope of this people, even as ancient as they may be? That there is coming a son of the woman who will crush the serpent and his offspring, who will set right what sin and corruption has destroyed and degraded. We're longing for the one who will accomplish this work. We haven't found him yet. This is the hope. All right, let's move forward. 24. If there's an angel as mediator, one out of a thousand, so verse 24, then let him be gracious to him and say, deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. So this is the mediator. He's speaking to God on behalf of the person who's dying. Keep going. Verse 25. Because the NASB is trying to help you out. Then his flesh becomes fresher than in youth, and let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. So in other words, because of the work of this mediator, there is a hope for this dying man that he will not be dying anymore. Do you get to rewind the clock? No. Perspective matters. Elihu is looking forward. Verse 26. Then he will pray to God, and God will accept him, that he may see God's face with joy and God may restore his righteousness. God may restore God's righteousness to man. This is a hope for a mediator who will bring about redemption. Not to undo your petty complaining about life, not to undo the sickness and the illness that you have faced, but to realize that in the midst of this illness, that no matter what it may be that brings you to the brink of the pit, your hope is in a redemption from God. That's good perspective. That's living rightly in the world and seeing the fruits of what God has done and understanding that it is God who rescues, that it is eternity where our hope is found, and that this world does not love us because everything in this world is corrupted by sin. That's why Paul can say things like 1 Timothy 2. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, 
the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. I've said this before, when we talk about Old Testament saints, we like to describe them as saved on credit. <laughs> because as their lives were being lived, Christ's work has not been accomplished yet in the world. But because God is eternal, because he is outside of time, he has ordained the accomplished work of Christ. Therefore, in God's economy, it is what? It is accomplished. Even if it hasn't been done yet in the world, it is accomplished. Therefore, God can rescue these men. He can save sinners based on the work of Christ because Christ's eternal work is accomplished even then. This is one of the reasons, Christian, why you can hope in that eternal kingdom. You have not seen it yet. You have not made it there yet. But God has. (laughs) Don't try to understand that. You can't. Because I can't. Not that you're not any smarter than I am, but humanity can't. But God who is eternal, who knows the end from the beginning, knows the promise that he has made, and it is accomplished. Therefore, Christian, you can have hope that all that he has promised you, he will bring to pass. That as he has been faithful, and as he is being faithful, he will be faithful. This is why Hebrews 7 can make the point. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in great numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. That's always such a simple argument to me. Why do we need a bunch of priests? Because they're going to die, and if they die and we don't have any other priests, who's going to offer the sacrifice for the people? This makes sense. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save those forever who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. In other words, God's work is being accomplished then, now, and forevermore. That's part of the perspective that you're seeing here. I encourage you, read to the end of this chapter, but Sally, we are skipping to 34.1. You ready? dun da 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 There you go. Then Elihu continued, and I will encourage you to read the next nine verses because it is sarcastic as I'll get out. (laughs) But you know what? Let's be honest. Everybody sitting around that little campfire with Job, you know what they deserve? They deserve a little sarcasm uh, couched in wisdom, so I'm not going to complain about it. But Elihu returns to talking about God. Verse 10, he continues in verse 10. So based on all of his sarcasm, therefore, listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do wickedness and from the Almighty to do wrong. In other words, knowing who God is, knowing what he has accomplished, knowing what he has promised, we can trust in him because he is good. He is holy. This is what Isaiah will discover and realize about himself. And by the way, this is what every human being realizes about himself when God shows up. If you want to have some fun, just go read through all of the interactions between humanity and God in your Old Testament. And you'll see that they fall into one of two categories. Either they realize they're talking to God and they are more than just a little bit freaked out, or they don't know they are talking to God. And then after they realize they've talked to God, they are very much freaked out. So, uh, my favorite example of this, we covered this, we went through Exodus, is, you know, God comes down upon the mountain at Sinai, and there's the lightning and the cloud and the shaking and the booming voice from heaven, and God says, you know, don't let the people come up to the mountain, because if they come up on the mountain, they'll die. And Moses goes down to tell the people, all right, we're going to put up borders, no one go up on the mountain, and everybody goes, cool. Yeah, we no intentions. As a matter of fact, we don't want to go anywhere near that. Tell you what, you go talk to God for us, and whatever he tells you, we believe you. <laughs> They were all, I mean, it's again, don't come up the mountain. And everybody went, duh. (laughs) 
that that was necessary. It's like when you read instructions on something, and you're like, don't put this in your ears. And you're like, I didn't need to know I needed to be told that. Okay, good deal. You know, don't shove a knife up your nostrils. Who did that? Always realize that every dumb warning label you have ever seen is because somebody did that. Somebody did that. Just remind yourself of that, and then thank God that you didn't need to be told that. Okay, there you go. So, Elihu continues. For he pays a man according to his work and makes him find it according to his way. Surely God will not act wickedly and the Almighty will not pervert justice. In other words, God is a just judge. Proverbs 11.1 A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. So God is the just judge because he is holy. He gave, he gave him authority over the earth. I'm sorry, who gave him authority over the earth? And who has laid on him the whole world? If he should determine to do so, if he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. In other words, who runs this place? God. What say do you have in that? Like, when the election for God was held, who did you vote for? <laughs> the answer was what? I didn't because there was no election. Had there been an election, who would you have voted for? Be honest. If there was an election for God, you know no one would have won because we would have all done the same thing. That's me! <laughs> and then we would have counted up the votes and everyone would have gotten one vote. And then we'd go, all right, we got to have a recount. Let's do it again. And we'd have had the second election and everybody would have had one vote. That's why there was no election. It's not like you voted or you appointed God. God, he is and was and is to come. He is beyond and above you. You cannot understand. You cannot comprehend. That's one of the things that makes him God. Therefore, when he is God and you are not and he has created and you are the created, who's in charge here? Like when you make a decision on what to have, to dinner, what to have for dinner, does the dog get a vote? Why not? He's hungry. He has preferences. I would prefer different things. The answer is no, because he's the dog. He doesn't, he, while he lives here, he doesn't pay the bills. He doesn't, you know, pay the taxes on anything. He doesn't do anything. He just gets whatever you give him. You don't take his input onto these things. He lives here. He's yours. You're God's, whether you like it or not. Shall the one who hates justice rule? Will you condemn the righteous mighty one? He who said, I'm sorry, who says to a king, worthless one, to nobles, wicked ones, who shows no partiality to princes, nor regards the rich above the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. In a moment they die, and at midnight people are shaken and pass away, and the mighty are taken away without a hand. In other words, stop me if you've heard this before, God is a just judge. Why is Elihu repeating that again? What's been Job's complaint this whole time? I'm good, and he has treated me like I'm bad. He has judged me wrongly. That starts with an understanding of who you are without an understanding of who he is. Once again, what is Elihu doing? Proper perspective. God is holy. God is righteous. God is working out his plans. God is the just judge. God has dominion. Did I mention that he's the just judge? For his eyes are upon the ways of a man, and he sees all his steps. There is no darkness or deep shadow where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves, for he does not need to consider a man further that he should go before God in judgment. So, this holy, righteous God, who is working out his plan in the world, who is 
a just judge who has dominion over all things and is the just judge, what has he missed? Nothing. He sees everything. You didn't bring him new information. It's not like you're sitting here complaining was suddenly a revelation to him that he needed to deal with. He heard, he saw, he knows. Now, the reason why we went through that as painfully slowly as we did was because that understanding of everything from 32 to this point is going to inform the, so the therefores that Elihu comes to. This is what this should have looked like the whole time. So you ready? He breaks in pieces mighty men without inquiry and sets others in their place. Therefore, he knows their works and he overthrows them in the night. They are crushed. He strikes them like the wicked in a public place because they turned aside from following him. In other words, God was just, I'm sorry, and had no regard for any of his ways. God, when he judges, does so how? Just so you, in case you're wondering, he's the just judge, therefore he judges justly. So, they, so that they caused the cry of the poor to come to him, that he might hear the cry of the afflicted. When he keeps quiet, who then can condemn? And when he hides his face, who then can behold him? That is in regard to both nation and man, so that godless men would not rule nor be snares of the people. In the midst of that judgment, he is merciful. He does not uphold the wicked because he is providing mercy in the world. Keep going, we're almost there. For has anyone said to God, I have, been bor- I have borne chastisement, I will not offend anymore. Teach me what I do not see. If I have done iniquity, I will not do it again. Shall he recompense on your terms because you have rejected it? For you must choose and not I, therefore declare what you know. God is just to those who repent and trust. If you claim to be righteous and you have not trusted in God, well, then that's going to be the standard you get judged with. Here we go. Here's your punchline. Men of understanding will say to me, and a wise man who hears me, Job speaks without knowledge, and his words are without wisdom. Job ought to be tried to the limit because he answers like wicked men, for he adds rebellion to his sin, he claps his hands among us, and multiplies his words against God. We got there, and Elihu nailed it. You start out, Job, complaining that you are good, that you are righteous, that God owes you a hearing, and that he has treated you unjustly. Stop. He is righteous, and he is holy, and he is working out his plans for his people, and he is judging rightly, and he holds dominion, and he is judging rightly, and he is working out all of his justice in this time. Who do you think you are? Your complaint is your condemnation. Is this not where we came to as a conclusion about three weeks ago? Because we started with what? Who God is, what he has commanded in this world, Job's very actions and crying out that he is being judged is a demonstration of his sinfulness. God is holy and can be trusted in judgment. Therefore, when he judges you, you are guilty. This is where we should have gotten to. Where are we? I'm confused. Hold on. We're in chapter 34. Shouldn't we have gotten here about chapter 4, chapter 5? Why Why didn't we? Because we didn't start with chapters 32 and 33. This is why I tell you to think through your world and evaluate it rightly. Are you ready for your big theological words of the day? Here we go. This is always the fun part. You are supposed to be living a life based on orthodoxy. Right saying. Right believing. 
Your orthodoxy is supposed to have influence on what we call your orthopraxy, your right living, your practice of your knowledge. In other words, what you do is primarily influenced by what you believe. Christian, what is what you believe going to be influenced by? What you want, how you desire, what you know to be true or believe to be true in this world. In other words, your foundations matter. This is why I tell you, you can't win the argument with the world. The heart is broken. You can't rip out that heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh, but God can. Therefore, your argument with them is a testimony to the mercies of Christ and his rescue from the judgment that abides against sin. This is why I've told you a thousand times. I love those Ray Comfort videos on the beach. If God were to judge you according to, these, uh, according to these commandments, would you be innocent or guilty? I don't believe in God. Yes, you do. <laughs> no, I don't. Yes, you do. And if you'll ever notice, after about one back and forth, you know what they do? They answer the question because we know that you know what's true, and you know that we know that you know, and we could do that for a really long time, and I won't do that. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They have become unjust. They have rejected the truth of God in unrighteousness. They know. That's why they want you to shut up. That's why they want to call you hateful. That's why they want to call you mean. That's why they want to tell you your tone is wrong. Not because you've said something wrong, but because you have told them the truth that they already knew in their heart. You have never once, I guarantee this, you have never once been standing in your sin and gone, I cannot believe this. This is a total shock. Nobody told me I wasn't supposed to do that. Hmm... That's never happened. You knew. You knew. You talked yourself into it. You lied to yourself to convince yourself it was a good idea. Whatever it was that you did to get you to do the thing that you knew you weren't supposed to do. Yeah, I'm going to go with that. <laughs> it wasn't a shock. It wasn't an accident. Oops. It was rebellion. You knew and God knew and for that too Christ died. This is why the hope is in him and not in you. This is why the pictures of the kings are so important. They are not righteous and good men, as perfection would call good. They are good men as God would call good, because he has rescued them and he has redeemed them. That's the standard. What's your standing before God? This is what Job has continually gotten wrong. We know Job's righteous. God told us so in the beginning. Blameless and upright in all of his ways. Why? Because he's been redeemed and rescued by God. Which means, what should Job's answer be? I am righteous because God has cleansed me. I am whole because he has put me back together. Why then has he rescued me only to put me in this predicament? See, that's a valid question. And that's one we can work through. That's one we can figure out. We can sit down and go, okay, let's examine the life and let's examine your heart and let's think what we've known and know what we think and figure out what's going on so that we can get back on the track where we are worshiping, praising God in spite of this mess. That's what should have happened. It hasn't happened because nobody's been able to look at Job and say, your heart is thinking the wrong things. Your core is believing in the wrong direction. It's taken whatever this young man is to run down the attributes of God, explain who he is, who we are in light of that, and then say, based on that, you're not submitting unto him. Therefore, we have found your sin. Now let's move forward. This is the rapid fire portion of the program. I told you we were going to spend all of our time there. Read every verse of the next three chapters. They will do you infinitely good. 
So chapter 35 begins. Then Elihu continued and said, Do you think this is according to justice? Do you say my righteousness is more than God's? You say, what advantage will it be to you? What profit will I have more than if I had sinned? I will answer you and your friends with you. Look at the heavens and see. Behold the clouds. They are higher than you. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? If your transgressions are many, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give him? What does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness is for a man like yourself, and your righteousness is for a son of man. Because of the multitude of oppressions, they cry out. They cry for help because of the arm of the mighty. Now stop. Notice the point here. Who's the low one in this relationship? Job and his friends. Who's the high and exalted one? God. This is about perspective. This is another roundabout way of saying, Job, you want to know what you bring to the table. I mean, what do you bring? Who do you think you are in this relationship? Who are you? What do you? Yes, so you were good today. What does God gain from that? Yes, you were evil today. What did God lose from that? The point is not what you bring. It's who God is, that the just judge will judge sin rightly and he will rescue those who have trusted in him. This is, a not, this is not about what you bring. This is about who you are in light of who God is. This is about looking in the mirror and having a long, hard conversation about where your life is going in light of God's righteousness and his offer of mercy to those who trust him. That's what this is about. In other words, Job, you're asking the wrong question. I mean, Paul will run this down in Romans 9. Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Does it? Or does the potter, does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? That'd be a good application to this situation, Job. You claim to have done everything right, that God owes you more than this, does he? Does Job owe you everything in life to be amazing? Does Job owe you everything in life to be wonderful? Does Job owe you every good thing? Does, does, or does God owe you every good thing? The answer is no. Your hope is not here. Your hope is in eternity. You're longing for the work of that mediator. That's where it's supposed to be. Now, I'm trying to think. I have this laid out, but it just... We are going to do this such a disservice because there's just no way to run through all of this. So again, I encourage you, read every bit of this because this is what he's going to do for the next few verses. I mean, uh, no one says, where is God, my maker, who gives songs in the night, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth, who makes us wider, wiser than the birds of the heavens? There they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. Surely God will not listen to an empty cry, nor will the Almighty regard it. How much less when you say you do not behold him. The case is before him, and you must wait for him. Now, because he has not visited in his anger, nor has he acknowledged transgression well. So Job opens his mouth emptily. He multiplies words without knowledge. In other words, once again, Job, think about this rightly, understand who God is and what he calls. Now, here's your rundown. You ready? Um, Sally, you're not going to be able to keep up with these verses, so we'll just hopscotch towards the end. So there you go. You've been warned. 36, 1 through 8, God has strength. God is the Almighty. We get that, right? 36, 9 through 16, the Almighty who has strength has understanding. That makes sense also. 
the ones who are hoping for wisdom should turn to the source of wisdom. 36, 17 through 23. Stop me if you've heard this before. God is just in his judgments. <laughs> Why does Elihu keep coming back to that one? Because what's Job's complaint? Therefore, we're going to hammer you with the truth of this. And then 24 through 33, this is the really good one. God is actually the one who saves. Now, realize this. Does Elihu come up with that idea out of thin air? No, it's built on what? That God is the one with strength. He is the one with wisdom. He is the one who judges rightly. Therefore, if you're going to make it, who's going to be the one that carries you through? God will. In other words, again, stop doing this. Start doing this. Eyes up. Perspective up. Life up. Stop making the entirety of your life, the three feet around you, in the four seconds that were back there and ahead of you. When are you faithful, Christian? Now. I can't do anything about 10 minutes from now. We try to all the time, don't we? How much of your life do you spend worrying about the 10 minutes ago? Just out of morbid curiosity. Or last year, or last month, or five years ago. I kid you not, I had an argument with myself yesterday about something stupid I said in 2004. I had to actually stop and think about how long ago it was. I'm going, oh my goodness, you've gotten that pathetic. Okay, (sighs) let's let that go. Can't do anything about it. What can I do? Now, I can deal with who I am, what I'm doing, how I'm thinking, what I'm living for. Now, this is where perspective matters. This is why you have to get away from this idea. Because as long as this is what I'm paying attention to, I can't get out of myself. I can't get out of my own way. Put God in perspective. Understand that it is his work that I'm attaining to, that it is his kingdom that I'm striving for. And now I can live with that knowledge and deal with my life now. Because again, you've never done this either. You've never planned out an argument with someone you're going to have later or a discussion that you're going to have later, right? What's the problem with that? Do they ever play their part like they're supposed to? Ever? Like, one, not, not even one time. Just like, and now you're mad. And who are you really mad at? Them. Because they didn't play their part like they're supposed to. How dare they not do this? Why? Because you tried to live all that time then. Just like you've never had an argument with someone, and you can't actually answer what they're saying because you're not listening? Because you're so busy doing what? Thinking of the next good zinger that I'm going to use, so I didn't actually hear what you said. Because you're not being patient. You're not being wise. You're trying to live for that moment that is to come rather than the one that is now. So 37, 1 through 5, God is the ruler. We've covered this, right? The one who has strength, the one who has wisdom, the one who is eternal, the one who is the just judge. He should be in charge of things, right? All right, good meeting, good good plan. Uh, 6 through 13, God is... Ooh, okay, here you go. Selly, 37, chapter 37, verse 13. This is, this is an important one. We're going to pause here. Whether for correction or for his world or for loving kindness, he causes it to happen. That's a verse that Job should have heard 30 chapters ago. Why is God doing what he's doing? Is it correction? Spurring you to the kingdom? Because he loves you? We don't know. But you know what we need to do? Figure it out. I need to figure out who I am, how I'm living in light of what I know to be true about him, and what I'm going to do moving forward. So, 
Listen to this, O Job. Stand and consider the wonders of God. Do you know how God establishes them and makes the lightning of his cloud to shine? Do you know about the layers of the thick clouds, the wonders of one perfect in knowledge, you whose garments are hot when the land is still because of south wind? Can you with him spread out the skies, strong as a molten mirror? Teach us what we shall say to him. We cannot arrange our case because of darkness. Shall it be told to him that I would speak, or should a man say that he would be swallowed up? Now men do not see the light, which is bright in the skies, but the wind has passed and cleared them. Out of the north comes golden splendor, and around God is awesome majesty. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is exalted in power, and he will not do violence to justice and abundant righteousness. Therefore, men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise of heart. There's your summary. God is above. God is beyond. And if you think you stand because of you, you will be sorely mistaken. Said earlier, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? Forget that and you will exalt yourself. Remember that and you will realize that this life is not about you. Realize then how much of this world has been corrupted, how much of this world has been downtrodden, how much of this world has been influenced by sin. Then remember who he is. And that is why Paul says what he says in Romans 2. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that it is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance? In other words, what did Job deserve? I mean, Job's whole argument is, I, I was good, I didn't deserve this. A scriptural argument is, Job, you're a sinner. You deserve ten times worse. But you had family, and you had prosperity, and you have the knowledge of God and wisdom from on high. In other words, you have more than you ever should have been given. That's the kindness of God. It's a recognition that he does not deal with us in every moment what we deserve. Again, you know why you're not voted for God? How many 